Previously on the Global Hemophilia Report. It's probably around 40 or 50 percent of people have pain that they notice impacting their lives more days than not. There's a lot of resiliency, but there's only so much energy and there's so much that you can do. Something has to give. I have one person that I can think of who told me that he was able to run through Walmart to chase after his children. And that's the measure of success in treating his pain. I think it's just acknowledging their vast amount of experience of managing their chronic pain and saying, right, you've tried all of those things, what's not working and why? Welcome to the Global Hemophilia Report, a podcast led by science, curiosity and storytelling produced by Believe Limited and Bloodstream Media and supported through advertisements by Sanofi. I'm Patrick James Lynch, your host for this episode and resident person with hemophilia. Today's focus, pain, part two. Thanks for listening. If you missed part one, click on the link in the show notes or visit bloodstreammedia.com. If you're already caught up, congratulations, you get a gold star. And we'll dive back into the discussion with our experts right after this quick word from Sanofi. Sanofi is breaking barriers for people with hemophilia through groundbreaking science so they can live beyond the limitations of their condition. Learn more about Sanofi's commitment at sanofihemophilia.com. Welcome back. Pain can impact a person's life in some pretty profound ways. And I'm not just talking about the already unfortunate experience of being in pain, nociceptive pain or neuropathic pain and so forth. I'm also referencing the probably endless array of consequences and disruptions a person's life experiences as a result of pain. But professor, I told you, sometimes it just looks like I'm not paying attention when I'm actually just trying to breathe through some pain. I can't believe you're docking my grade for this. Hey boss, it's me. I'm having a real bad flare up and I don't think I can make it in today. Um, no, I don't think I have any paid time off remaining. Is that gonna be a problem? Hey, it's me. So I'm calling because I can't make it to your birthday party tonight. I know I said I'd be there. I'm so sorry. Sweetheart, you need to sit down. I'm fine. You look like you're really hurting. Maybe we should go home. No, please. I don't want to go home. I think I can make it, please. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, the position sounds like a great fit, and I love the sound of your company. Did you say how much the job is on your feet? Oh, I see. I'm sorry, babe. I know this trip means a lot to you. I'm just too worried my hip's going to start acting up. Best not to push it. I'm sorry to let you down, but I just don't think I can do it. I don't think that's for me. I don't think I can make it. I don't think I can do it. I don't. I can't. Pain has a way of shutting life down. But as patients living with pain, moreover, as people, we deserve better. And the more that scientists, researchers, and clinicians come to learn about pain, the more that can be done to lessen pain's total impact on a person's life. On the previous episode, we discussed pain's definition, mechanisms, and prevalence with experts Natalie Roussel, Paul McLaughlin, Tyler Buckner, and Michelle Wickop. Tyler and Michelle also served as advisors across these episodes. And we heard from a patient and caregiver, Michelle Rice, who provided lived experience insights on pain and whose contributions helped illustrate 
why a biopsychosocial approach to pain in hemophilia, and regardless of hemophilia severity level, is important. Now, on this episode, we'll cover a number of things, including physical therapy, rehabilitation and exercise, pain medications, and socioeconomic drivers of pain. But given that many of our expert pain researchers are also clinicians meeting regularly with patients, let's center our discussion here at the top by first expanding on something we introduced in the previous episode, pain assessments in the clinic. How does everything we've learned so far influence how a clinician assesses the pain experience of a person with hemophilia in the clinic? What does that process look like? Natalie kicks us off. The first step for me consists of the subjective history or the qualitative research, not only relying on the questionnaires, but to have a broad view. And then you can establish priorities in the management plan. And these should be done together with the person because in chronic pain, you have different options. For example, with changing behavior, it's not easy. So that's not the first option you will do, but you will try to explain what is pain. And in this dialogue, have the possibility to come back on some maybe misbeliefs about pain. For example, people believe that because the joint is damaged, it, it will be painful for the rest of their life and they are afraid to load the joint and to participate in physical activities. So for me, yes, the first step after agreeing about the priorities is to make some aspects clear with the patient, with the person, and then set up a, a proper management plan. I think that our approach is very similar. This is Tyler Buckner. I like to very much focus in on and get in someone's words, write down, you know, how does pain impact your life? And that's often very telling. We definitely subscribe to the multimodal model of pain management. I tend to think of this as a three-legged stool. And so the first and often most involved and effective part of that is physical therapy and PT interventions, assessment, figuring out what's our step-by-step -step process to improve pain using PT interventions, there's a psychosocial component in managing mental health conditions and uh, psychosocial impacts of pain. And so we have a social worker in our clinic that helps with that piece. And then there's the medical piece and what medications may be effective at improving that experience and reducing the impact of pain. And we try to de-emphasize, at least in my practice, a over-reliance on medications because that's often used as a quick way out, so to speak, of, oh, well, if you're having pain, I'm not really going to take the time to ask about it or hear about how that's impacting you. I'm just going to write this prescription and give you some pills, and then my job is done. That is the wrong approach. And I mean, I think we should just say that out front, that it cannot just rely on medications, though they may be important. They are only one piece. And if you only have one or two legs of a stool, it's not going to stand up. Yeah, so a big part of my PhD was looking at developing rehabilitation as an approach for pain management for those with chronic multi-joint arthropathy and hemophilia. This is Paul McLaughlin. And one of the most sort of interesting findings for us was the idea of goal setting. And so we got self-referred people. So they were people who viewed themselves as having chronic pain that was problematic and to volunteer for the study. There's been some very good work in the bleeding disorders community on how to create a process of setting goals in a way that's meaningful. So you can use that as the best means of monitoring someone's progress over time. You know, when I get up in the morning, how am I going to tell if this pill or this 
physical therapy intervention or other activity that's meant to treat pain, how am I going to figure out if it's working? And how am I going to decide to keep going with that? And what was really interesting is that when we did the intervention, the goals that they thought they had set themselves actually didn't really get achieved, but they achieved these other things because we did interviews with everybody after as well. So we have quantitative and qualitative experiences of the intervention. And it became very clear that we made an assumption that people would know how to set up a goal and that they would know they would be able to identify something that they would want to and could change. But it became clear that for many of these people, they didn't know what could be possible. And so actually they were giving the trust to us in the group with this sort of credible source of the physio who knew them, who knew their haemophilia. They had a, um, an intervention that was designed around their own physical abilities, around their specific ankle and their specific knee. And we found out that actually we probably should look at goal setting six weeks after initial rehabilitation, where actually you show somebody what is possible and then you say, okay, so nothing bad has happened. You feel better in yourself. Now maybe we should look at what you would you like to progress with. So it was really interesting because as physios were trained almost to do the stuff up front, but actually if you don't know what is achievable because you've never been allowed to do this kind of activity or you've conditioned yourself for 30 years not to do this activity, goal setting could actually be remarkably hard from a rehabilitation perspective. People found changes that they didn't expect. One guy said that his pain was still present, but it was a passenger in the bus rather than driving the bus now. And it was a really nice way of, he didn't expect his pain to go away because he has multi-joint arthropathy. But actually, the fact that it wasn't the thing he thought about most every day was enough. So it just raises how much time you really need to devote to this. There is no easy way out. There is no easy way out or around something that simply takes some time. Clinics are generally pressed for time, but as more and more clinicians, like Paul, Natalie, and Tyler, fight for this more thorough and comprehensive approach to assessing someone's experience of pain, what's being learned? What is this process uncovering? I think that experience that we're kind of just beginning to have, at least in my clinic, with more and more patients and different types of patients and with different types of diseases, that extends to other types of pain, like pelvic pain in women with bleeding disorders. A previous episode of Global Hemophilia Report, led by my colleague Lawrence Woolard, comprehensively explores the multifaceted issues facing women with hemophilia, though this issue of pelvic pain was not a focus for that episode. Natalie shares some interesting research highlights right after this quick break. Globally, approximately 75% of people living with hemophilia have limited or no access to treatment. Sanofi is committed to helping address this public health crisis. In 2020, Sanofi, together with Sobi, extended their support for the WFH Humanitarian Aid Program, fulfilling their 2014 pledge to donate up to 1 billion IUs of Factor for humanitarian use over a 10-year period. This is the single largest donation of hemophilia factor therapy and has already provided treatment for more than 17,300 people in 43 countries an important first step to providing a sustainable supply of therapy to those in need. To learn more about Sanofi's global commitment to the hemophilia community, visit SanofiHemophilia.com. Welcome back. We pick back up on the topic of pelvic pain with Natalie. We did a literature study a couple of years ago to better understand chronic pelvic pain in the general population, so not in the bleeding disorder community. 
And two conclusions were very clear from this research. One, the mental health was not taken into account. So there was a lack of research exploring psychological distress and psychological factors related to chronic pelvic pain. It is a sensitive issue. It is a delicate region. Psychology's impact on the experience of pain is indeed a sensitive topic, especially when discussing women who have faced historical prejudice and have been dismissed as hysterical or confused at times when speaking about pain with medical providers. And the second part was that also in these people, you have this altered central nervous system that is dysfunctioning. So you do have people with nociplastic pain in the general population suffering from chronic pelvic pain. And I'm sure that in the women with heavy menstrual bleeds and a lot of pain, you will find this as well. But again, it's a biopsychosocial approach that is necessary with specific attention to to underlying pain mechanisms. And this is what the community needs, I would say, urgently. A biopsychosocial approach with specific attention to underlying pain mechanisms. Natalie's call for focus to these areas is quite clear and compelling. But staying on the topic of pelvic pain and pain experienced by women with hemophilia, what more is there to say about what we know, what we don't know, and what needs to happen next? It is clear that that population in a hematology setting has been ignored and largely swept under the rug for many reasons from a societal, cultural level and the stigmatization of menstrual bleeding and heavy menstrual bleeding as issues that are just not talked about. And so as that comes into the light and becomes more and more accepted as a problem that we as hematology providers need to address, I think that that will create the need to better understand this person's experience and how their pain affects their life so that then we can begin to address that as healthcare providers. You know, it's interesting, the bigger problem with care providers outside of the hemophilia center That's Michelle Rice. She has mild hemophilia A and is the caregiver to two adult children with severe hemophilia. So the hematologist at the hospital where I had my jaw surgery, the first orthopedist I went to when I first broke my ankle and was in an active bleed, biggest problem was convincing them I really had hemophilia, right? (laughs) They kept saying, well, you don't look like you have hemophilia. You don't look like you have a bleeding disorder. I'm assuming that's because I wasn't a male, but they were more than willing to address pain. Given the scenario I was in, it was more making sure they understood what was causing the pain and then understanding how that might affect what medication they were going to give me for that pain. Michelle's account recalls a point made on the previous episode that interventions to address pain should be tailored to the actual underlying pain mechanisms. The fact that bleeding in itself isn't necessarily painful because blood in itself hasn't got a nociceptive quality. It is the effect of blood being somewhere it shouldn't be. And actually menstrual bleeding that is either not managed or poorly managed, we do not understand yet the sort of pathophysiology of that level of chronic constant subclinical or clinical inflammation. One example of something that is different about this group that we know very little about is iron deficiency. And so iron deficiency is so common in women and those with the potential to menstruate that it may have an effect on a person's pain experience. We know that iron deficiency is increasingly recognized as playing a role in symptoms like fatigue and kind of day-to-day 
functioning and mental clarity and acuity, it may also play a role in the experience of pain. That is something that has yet to be explored. I think that an indicator is in the HHT population. That's the voice of Michelle Whitkop from NHF. HHT, or hereditary hemorrhagic telangiectasia, is a disorder in which some blood vessels do not develop properly. They had previously reported that women with HHT did not have any heavy menstrual bleeding. And in a recent study, they found that 72% of women with HHT had heavy menstrual bleeding. When they looked at pain, these women reported moderate and severe pain that impacted their quality of life. And to your point, Tyler, 67% of them had anemia and a vast majority of them needed some type of iron replacement. So again, we don't have that information or a similar type of study in women with hemophilia or von Willebrand's disease, but if we were to look at something like that, I think we would find very similar. Pelvic pain and the pain experiences of women with hemophilia is clearly an area in need of further research. Another area of pain management that, yes, could also use additional research, but for which there is some data and evidence to support, is on the role of exercise and physical therapy as a strategy for reducing or eliminating pain. On the previous episode, Paul spoke about the importance of goal setting in a rehabilitation study aimed at exploring physical therapy and rehab strategies as a means of managing or decreasing pain. Let's revisit that topic. What is the role of exercise in pain management for people with hemophilia? Exercise can have a pain-decreasing effect, but it's not an instant effect. So you need a certain intensity to have this descending pain system activating. And when this system is active, it means that it will kind of reduce the pain you will feel in daily life. So physical activity is a powerful part of the pain management plan, but we will prescribe different approaches according to the underlying pain mechanism. If you have a person with nociceptive pain, you know that there is a problem in the periphery. And so if the person feels pain intensity, you should be careful not to overload the joint at that moment. So we have to take the pain intensity into account. When you have a person with nociplastic pain, you have a nervous system that is not uh, acting, I would say, in a kind of reliable way. So the pain intensity that the person feels does not mean that there is overload of the joint. And there we will not take pain intensity into account. But what we will do is maybe start with some global exercises, not the region that is painful, to also keep the attention away, but to have, uh, I would say, a starting point, and it, it has been proven to be successful. So for example, people with low back pain, you will do general exercise, not specific, and then you will come back later on specific exercise that includes also strengthening. We do have a powerful tool for people with exercise, but they need to be convinced themselves. In the end, there will be an improvement, but they have to be, I would say, supported by a team that believe in the effect of exercise because the progression is really, really slow. I went through physical therapy for my ankle for probably three months before I ended up ultimately having surgery. Then after that, I did additional rehab. I've done rehab for my back years ago from a car accident and had to do PT then as well. So the importance of doing rehab and the ability for the PT to have an impact or to mitigate the amount of pain you're having, I am familiar with that concept. So my the intervention I was talking about where we used to exercise, it was low impact, moderate intensity. It was twice a week for 30 minutes. 
So in some physio terms, that's not very fancy. And some people say that that's not enough because you should be doing more than that every every day. But this intervention was designed by people with hemophilia. So actually the underlying theory was designed by people with hemophilia. And that's what they told me they wanted to do. And they felt that, that was the most, the best way to involve people, to give everybody a chance to start somewhere. And actually, it looks like there's definitely something in there. It was a global exercise program. It involved cardiovascular arms and legs, upper and lower limb. And so it was a non-joint specific, moderate intensity, low impact intervention. And so I think this idea that we have to be performing more actually is a sort of fallacy from a sort of a hangover from the physical activity exercise sports people actually if somebody isn't moving very much for them to just move more a few minutes a day is has more health benefits to them than somebody who continues to run 10k every day our job as healthcare professionals is even with people with pain is to find a way for them to be confident enough to move some more every day because humans are made to move no matter what that is an initial starting point is really really important that some physical activity is better than none um, irrespective of the starting point yes maybe to add on that it's really important that people with multi-arthropathy know that the progression will be slow and we know that from experience from people with hemophilia that have spoken at several conferences about how they perform the kind of fitness training for their own and it took them two years so that means that you cannot expect a quick result but then you need to focus on the adherence and to find ways that include the person's preference because we all find that a fitness exercise on our own is boring. So that's not something you can do for years. So you have to find some way of activities that are in accordance with the person's preference. And because of this adherence, it's necessary for a long-term program. I think it's really important to discuss the option. And as Paul said, a few minutes is better than nothing, but a few minutes every day, every day, every day. And I also think that it's important that all members of the team also give the same message. Because if one person from the multidisciplinary team says that, yeah, of course, exercise is good, but you have to be careful because the joint is damaged, then you can start your education again and again and again. So that's that's the challenge, I would say, in a multidisciplinary team is that everyone needs to give the same message. The message has to be the same that we all talk from the same hymn sheet. Especially when it comes to exercise. Physical therapy and the importance of exercise was a major theme in a panel that I hosted for Hemophilia Federation of America's symposium in 2022 called The Journey to Joint Health. The panel featured several adult men with hemophilia speaking on the role of exercise in a variety of fashions and how it has played out in each of their respective lives. Here's a short clip of sound bites. By doing like more steps, walking, that's the only way I'm actually gonna have more movement and less arthritic pain in the long run. And I found that the more I actually use the treadmill, this issue went away. I have terrible arthritis in my right ankle. The more I use the treadmill, the less arthritis I have. Motion is lotion for the joints. By show of hands, through this experience, how many of you experienced uh, better joint health? That's incredible. Uh, listeners, every hand went up. You can hear more on exercise from these and other men with hemophilia by listening to the Journey to Joint Health episode of Bloodstream Podcast. There's a link in the show notes. When we come back, we conclude this episode and our coverage on pain with discussion on medications, socioeconomic drivers, and priorities for future research. Did you know that nearly 80% of bleeds in hemophilia occur in the joints? 
Joint bleeds are the most common type of bleed and can cause lasting damage as well as increase the risk of recurrent bleeds. Sanofi is committed to breaking barriers for patients, including providing resources and education to support joint health. Visit hemejointhealth.com to see how routine, objective assessment might benefit patients' joint health for the long term. Again, that's heme, as in H-E-M, jointhealth.com. This site is intended for U.S. healthcare professionals. Welcome back. By now, it's common knowledge to anyone listening to this podcast that we are in the midst of a multi-year global opioid crisis, all while governmental restrictions, at least here in the United States, limit the researchability of things like psilocybin or cannabis for use in pain management. So what data and evidence is there to support the use and additional study of medicines to address pain in people with hemophilia? Well, I think from a cannabis perspective, we really don't have any research. The landscape is improving to where we may be able to do more research in a controlled manner in the future. So that is promising. We do have in CVR people's experience. CVR stands for Community Voices in Research, a National Hemophilia Foundation-led initiative to activate the bleeding disorders community around research. Where we ask them if they utilize medical marijuana and for what reasons and what effect they feel they get from it. And we've been getting that many people are using medical marijuana, mostly for pain, but also for anxiety and depression. And they are finding benefit from it. So it is out there. And I do believe that we need to have research on it. And it doesn't have the side effects that opioids do. Yeah, I think at this point, what we know about cannabinoids and marijuana products for the treatment of pain is anecdotal in the bleeding disorders population. And there's a plethora of anecdotal evidence or stories that come from individuals who have found benefit in some form or another. And I've seen the full spectrum, including use of topical CBD oils or other creams and things that for some people seem to be effective and help reduce their pain. And in others, they do seem to do nothing. There are potential drawbacks of cannabinoids in certain groups and and certainly in young people. There's concerns about brain development and interfering with that process as an individual is developing through their teens and even through their 20s. And so we have to recognize that piece of this. The overarching message that I give people when they ask me about research into marijuana and pain control is that there's just not a lot that's known and been done. It's, It's difficult in this country to do research on cannabinoids, largely because of the federal prohibition on those products. And so getting federal funding has always been challenging, at least compared to other areas of therapeutic and clinical research. That is expanding, and there are centers and places where there are dedicated individuals who've been working on these issues and questions for years. Not many of them, if any, that I'm aware of are focused in the bleeding disorders population. So very little is known from an objective kind of scientific standpoint. I can tell you that I have met a number of folks who get a lot of benefit. And sometimes that benefit is avoiding other potentially more harmful treatments, particularly opioids. And so in that way, they may play a a role for selected individuals as one piece of pain management. 
We have a good understanding of the side effect profile of opioids and the risks associated with them, but we do not with cannabinoids and medical marijuana. And to Tyler's point, that's an area that really needs a lot of research, not only just the effect of it and the benefit of it, but also the potential side effects. Those are often downplayed. I think that opioids, I mean, the consensus is that there is no consensus. People have very strong feelings about this. My own personal approach is that opioids have a role for management of severe pain and potentially for management of chronic pain in certain individuals, they do provide benefit. However, they must be used and prescribed responsibly. I have a responsibility to ensure that anything that I recommend to someone for pain management or for any other type of management, that everybody's on the same page. We all know as best we can, what are the risks? What are the potential benefits and harms? How do we monitor these medications and treatments to know that we're actually doing more good than harm. It's very true that opioids have a much riskier profile than some of our other treatments. And so you do have to use them carefully. In the U.S., you're required to monitor them in in certain ways, depending on exactly where you're located state by state. And all these things are in place for safety and regulatory reasons, and so we have to comply with that. It's really a complex and often thorny issue, but I do think that they can help certain people in, in certain situations. But that's a whole nother layer for me. That's an extra, if we're going to talk about using opioids for management of chronic pain, that's a whole extra clinic visit and multiple additional follow-up requirements because we want to make sure we're doing the right thing by someone and not just leaving them out to hang with a prescription that we renew without ever asking again about it. I think opioids are in some respects vilified, rightly so, because they have been prescribed and then poorly managed in the follow-up, actually. But I'm with Tyler, I think when used appropriately for the appropriate type of pain that you're trying to manage, they can be really helpful. I'm less convinced about their applicability in sort of ongoing chronic pain in the wide umbrella of how we talk, but I think this relates right back to which mechanism are you trying to target? If we don't know if we're targeting, we know that nociplastic pain does not respond to medications, certain medications the same way as nociceptive pain and the same way that neurogenic pain states. And it comes back to being confident, knowing what what it is you think you're, you're trying to manage and actually prescribing as best as possible the most effective thing for that person at that time, which again comes back to what Michelle said around this is everybody's job. Everybody on the multidisciplinary team should be part of the pain assessment model. And I don't know that it's ever been there. And it's something that we need to really work on in the future. The fabric of the story comes from the physio and the nurse and the psychologist and the doctor and maybe even the healthcare system who's taken the blood and they get the final piece of the story that we haven't quite heard. And then we knit it together and go, okay, this is what's going on here. A little earlier, we discussed pelvic pain and gender as essentially one socioeconomic driver of pain. But what about other socioeconomic drivers? Employment status, race, access. What do we know about how some of these drivers influence the experience of pain in people with hemophilia? In people with hemophilia, it's extremely difficult to explore racial differences and the socioeconomic status because we have a lack of data. But preliminary data confirm that people in, I would say, more modest socioeconomic conditions do have increased pain and more maladaptive coping strategies. So we know that there is a clear link with socioeconomic status. 
Regarding the racial aspects, I'm unsure. Some colleagues told me about experiences in Africa where they do not have access like we do to prophylactic treatments and that they continue to be physically active despite a terrible joint status and that they didn't seem to suffer at first sight so much pain. When people do not have any other option, they have, I would say, other coping strategies. So it's terribly complicated to conclude something without any objective research in that domain. We're talking about a very first word problem of the pain that we see in clinic and people who've got access to good prophylaxis. You know, if in certain countries where there's perhaps it's socially acceptable not to be able to work because of your chronic knee pain or, you know, there's a social safety net in places where if you have no work, you can't feed your family. Actually, pain may well take a much lesser importance at that time in life. And I think it's always really important when you're reading any of the papers and any of the manuscripts around pain to be mindful of what population that is, what age that population is and what their basic sort of healthcare access is because it makes a huge difference potentially to somebody's previous and current pain experience. It's just not reported in very many papers around even people's employment status is often not even reported, never mind socioeconomic status. So we're slightly grabbing in the dark for suppositions when we don't really understand the big extent of the problem. As we start to draw to a close, Given everything we've heard, particularly around gaps and areas of need for further study, what does this mean for the future of research into pain? What areas will be prioritized? And what if pain research must take place within the bleeding disorders community, and what unanswered questions could be addressed in general population pain research? Finally, are our national and international bleeding disorders organizations prioritizing the issue of pain appropriately? Our contributors weigh in on this, our final topic. The National Hemophilia Foundation recognizes that there is a huge research gap. And we already have our MASAC, which is our Medical and Scientific Advisory Committee Pain Initiative Group, which has been working about seven years now towards developing guidelines and things such as that. But we need more. We have found that in reaching out to different pain groups across the United States that they're not that interested in bleeding disorder pain because they consider us a very small group. And so pain is an initiative for us. We are going to take a more focused approach in the next couple of years, possibly developing a virtual institute of pain research and really focusing dollars and resources towards pain research, whether it's through doing research ourselves, through collaborating nationally and internationally, and going into areas that haven't been researched previously. And then also, how can we reach out to those established groups that are doing research research in pain and develop a collaboration so that we're not reproducing the wheel, but that we're adding to their science as well as to ours. Maybe I can continue. For me, the biggest need is a personalized approach. I don't believe in randomized controlled trials in this population where you have a standard pain management plan. I think you need a personalized approach. And for that, we really need to focus first on the assessment, to have an extensive assessment of the person with the biological, psychosocial aspects contextual factors, cultural factors, and then we will move forward to the individualized pain management plan. But for me, the word individual is really, really important in the story. And I think maybe a certain moment has come that people are willing to set up this kind of international studies. That would be my priority. I have two. One is continuing the rehabilitation 
end of things because I, I think it's underutilized, misunderstood and poorly theorized currently in hemophilia and it sits in very biomedically. I think it has potential. And I think following on from Natalie said we're just about to start a project. We've got some funding to understand the needs, the, sort of a gap analysis. Everybody seems to know pain is a problem. Patients are saying it's not well managed. Clinicians are saying we're trying but we're not that confident because I'm a haemophilia clinician, not a pain clinician. So there's clearly something in the middle around knowledge and confidence and ability. So we've designed a project to sort of try and qualitatively understand what people's confidence and fears are around managing pain with the people they work with because certainly in our clinic or people with haemophilia don't like going to the pain clinic because they have to start their story about haemophilia all over again and I feel very much the team dynamic exists and actually we just need to strengthen what's already there with confidence and knowledge and, and skills rather than sort of push people to another clinic where they have to start their narrative all over again with people who don't know them. I think the future of pain research in the bleeding disorders community is wide open. There is so much that needs to be done. And are our national groups doing enough? Are they focused in the right areas? I think the answer is no. We're trying to shift that. And Michelle mentioned efforts along those lines that NHF is making. That is a good sign, but it's really very early in this process. It's not like this has been first and front of mind for many people in this community, and that's part of what we're about. So I think the three, the kind of three themes that come to mind, convincing everyone that this exists, and it's not just joint pain in severe hemophilia, but as we spoke about before, other types of pain that occur in our patients. And then second, pain can be treated. And so that's gonna require research into specific pain treatments, but also research about our clinics and how do our healthcare systems work to provide this care as part of a comprehensive healthcare model. We have big centers with lots of people that work in them. How do we incorporate this piece of management into those already busy schedules and busy days for people. And then third, that this makes a difference. And so this gets back to the stories from individual people and how do we follow pain longitudinally or over time to know that all these things that we're doing are helping because that's what will ultimately convince the rest of the provider community that this really is our problem and that we need to make it part of our mission to reduce the negative impact of pain on our patients who have bleeding disorders. So what have we learned? We've learned that amongst the greater hemophilia population, pain is prevalent, personal, and multifactorial. There are different underlying mechanisms to pain, such as nociceptive, nociplastic, and neuropathic. Each mechanism results in different symptoms, and each requires a different intervention strategy. We learned about the categorization of acute versus chronic pain, the value of goal-oriented physical therapy and rehabilitation, and we heard expert thinking around socioeconomic drivers of pain experiences, such as gender, financial security, and racial background. We heard our experts speak to the use and study of pain medications. We heard loud and clear the need for a more biopsychosocial approach to addressing pain in people with hemophilia, and we heard about a lot of opportunity. Because when it comes to understanding how to address pain and hemophilia, it's clear that there is still plenty of opportunity to learn more. 
I would like to thank Michelle Whitcomb, Paul McLaughlin, Natalie Roussel, Tyler Buckner, and Michelle Rice for contributing to this episode. Thanks as well to Tyler and Michelle Whitcomb for serving as topic advisors. Thank you, Dr. Donna McKelly, for serving as the senior advisor on the project. And thank you to Global Hemophilia Report's featured advertiser, Sanofi. Visit sanofihemophilia.com to learn more. That's a wrap for episode 11 of the Global Hemophilia Report, the penultimate episode of the year and our first season. Thank you for joining us on our entertaining and informative evidence-based journey through the topic of pain in hemophilia. Join us next on December 15th for the Global Hemophilia Report's Season 1 Summary, where we'll recap the highlights from Season 1 and preview what's to come next year on Season 2. To be notified when the next episode drops, be sure to subscribe to the Global Hemophilia Report podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And make sure to share this episode with friends or colleagues in the field. You'll find the Global Hemophilia Report's social media pages on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For a list of links to the relevant research and other notable resources, please take a look at the program notes for this episode in your podcast player or visit this episode's webpage on bloodstreammedia.com. Thank you to our producer, Keith Corneluk, our editor, Kay Vermeil, graphic designer, Christina Newhard, creative director, Joshua Sterling Bragg, executive producers, Amy Board, Rob Bradford, and Ryan Geelan, and thank you to Lawrence Willard for your support. My name is Patrick James Lynch, and you've been listening to the Global Hemophilia Report. Until next time. Sanofi is committed to bringing new perspectives and bold innovations to the global hemophilia community. Learn more about how Sanofi is breaking barriers and supporting the community at sanofihemophilia.com.